Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Monday, January the 19th. This is episode 1502 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Monday. That means I have your questions, comments, concerns, ideas, thoughts, etc. Anything in the world that you want to send to me for me to potentially talk about on the show, you send those emails to my one and only real email address, jack at the survival podcast.com. Again, jack at the survival podcast.com. Okay, it's not really my one and only email address, but the point is all my email addresses do go to one place. Some people think I have a screener or something like that. I don't. I do actually read all of my emails. I'm not going to say I read them all completely and fully. And to be completely honest, and I'm just being completely honest, if you start out your email with Jack, I know your time's valuable and I don't want to take up too much of it, but. 87 paragraphs. I don't read it because I feel like your opening statement didn't actually make sense to me. So uh, I do get hundreds of emails a day. I do try to at least scan all of them. The brevity is appreciated, especially on the initial contact. Anyway, um, and in these emails for this show, it's best to give me your link or make your point in a sentence or two and then fill the details in below. That way I can screen it and see, well, what is this about? Can I? Does this qualify to be on the air? Uh, and the quicker I can determine exactly what it's about, the quicker I can make the determination. And it's not that I don't think all of the stuff you guys do is awesome. It's just, well, I'm going to cover five to seven stories on a Monday show, uh, maybe maybe eight or nine on a long Monday show. And if you get a hundred, well, a lot of them don't make it. So that's just how it works. Anyway, before that, let us take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today. Fortress Defense Consultants, Frank Sharp Jr. will help you to complete that gun operator triangle of efficiency that I'm always talking about. And that triangle of efficiency goes like this. The weapon itself has to be a good quality functioning weapon. The ammo, no ammo, a gun is an overpriced club. And then the linchpin, the, the final moving part, so to speak, is you, the operator. Now, we can buy a gun off the shelf, and it is what it is, and we know the quality of it. It works. It'll do what it's supposed to do. We do the same thing with ammo. There's rare instances of actually you know, high-quality manufactured ammo malfunctioning, but it's very low. Besides, if there is an ammo malfunction, what does that fall on? You, the operator, the final moving part. The operator is the one that needs the training. The ammo just needs to be quality. It doesn't need to be trained. The gun just needs to be quality. It doesn't need to be trained. You're the one that make them work. You need top-quality training. You can get that at Fortress Defense Consultants. From the awesome, the amazing, the stupendous Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors. Seriously, these guys are really great. Every bit of feedback that's ever come back from any student that's taking a, a class with them has been outstanding. Check them out today, FortressDefense.com. Next up today, Ready Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources you need, ready made, ready to go on their website. Point, click, and buy. You'll find it all again at ReadyMadeResources.com. And when I say everything, I mean it. Guns to gardens, practical to tactical, everything in between. 12-volt appliances for your solar and wind projects, the stuff to build solar and wind projects, long-term storage food, stuff to make your own food into long-term storage food. If it's something prepper-related and you go to ready-made resources and you don't see it there, please tell me. I'd like to know what they don't have. I haven't been able to figure it out yet. Again, ready-made resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does with great pricing and great service at ready-made resources. Dot com. Yes, I'm in a weird mood. It's a Monday. I don't know why, but I am. Anyway, 
Uh, next up today, let us take a look at the year that was the episode. The year was 1502. It must be that things were far different than they are today in 1502. Well, they were, but not so much in many ways. Uh, I got a great one for you today. Uh, first of all, the ones that are not being read. No Africans, no Jews, no Orthodox Christians. You might be surprised at what that's actually about and why somebody might actually want to be a slave in 1502 for a little while anyway. If you want to know, you got to go over to tspwiki.com, the 1502 link, and read it for yourself. And then Rio de Janeiro, January's River, is not a river. If that intrigues you, again, get over to the wiki and you can read it for yourself because I'm going to read The Pope Orders a Book, dot, 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 Burning, yes, Any books with th which threaten the legitimacy and power of Pope Alexander VI are to be cast to the flames, and new books must obtain a license to print by order of the Pope himself. Usually this means having the book's content reviewed prior to printing. However, the number of printing presses to monitor over a thousand and the number of books they produce and thus review, and the speed of printing press compared to its copying books by hand, is overwhelming the system. This order will fail, and the church will have to use other means to stop these dangerous ideas from spreading. If it sounds ominous, it is. And in case anyone was wondering, Martin Luther is currently 20 years old and attending college at the University of Effort. Hang in there. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these awesome stories together for us at tspwiki.com for the history section. We are seeing how the Gutenberg Press is changing the course of history. When books were hand-copied and took months or years to complete, very few were produced. This imposed a practical self-censorship. He only copied books that others were guaranteed to buy, such as religious works or scientific research. The printing press changed that strategy of book printing. It took a lot of effort to produce one page, but very little effort to produce 99 pages just like it. Compared to modern printing, it was like a trickle in a rainstorm, but compared to hand copying, it looked like Noah's flood. Collecting them all required a lot more effort, and there will always be a few that they miss. So basically, uh, the whole point was, hey, look, you know, when everybody had to handwrite a book and very few people knew how to read, uh, uh, this was easy to control the people's minds. But that got it. Now they have this thing where they can make these books and just chunk, chuck them out, you know, a book a day or something like that once they have the first, first layout done. We just can't keep our hands around this. So we're going to have to come up with other ways to beat the hell out of people and prevent them from learning new things. Does that sound like anything? What can you think of that's like that on steroids? Because even in 1985, if you wanted to publish works in a book, It was really, really expensive, and something like self-publishing was really expensive. Now we have things like CreateSpace and Lulu where authors can publish books for basically whenever the person says, hey, I'll buy a copy, copies printed and sent to them on demand. A little more expensive per book than a mass-produced, mass-printed book, but since the, the, the customer and the writer both benefit from that arrangement, it works well. That's even outdated as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there's still people out there that want a printed book, and I guess... There are certain instances in which, for now, print still seems to have some advantages, but I think those advantages, as e-reader technology is becoming more and more advanced, are beginning to fall apart. Um, today, I can't really make a case for any book not looking better on an iPad or a Kindle or a computer screen than it does on paper. 
It's easier to find what you're looking for, to reference things, to look things up that you know you read in the past, uh, but you can't remember where you read it, but you know what book it's in. Um, it takes up less space. It's more environmentally friendly. And the best part about it is, for all intents and purposes, there's very little cost to no cost for production, printing, and delivery. And then we have these things called blogs and things like Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and Instagram, and all these other things where pictures and text fly around the world in nanoseconds. And gee, the people in power, they thought this was going to be a good way to control us, but now they feel like, uh-oh, whoops. And they keep trying to find ways to censor and control the information, but the reality is they can't. The genie is out of the bottle. The Internet makes the Gutenberg printing press look like a cavity in a Tyrannosaurus Rex tooth. And that has given the people with great power have given the people great power. But there's an old saying, with great power comes great responsibility. And it's great, I think, that anybody can put out any idea they wish on the internet today. But the responsibility to me is less in the, the hands of the messenger and more in the hands of the messaged. It is our duty at this point, now that we know that anybody, anywhere, any fool with a $100 laptop, any fool that can get his hands on a borrowed iPhone, can put up anything they want on the Internet today, that it's up to us to vet and verify and think critically of the information we read, regardless of the source. That includes looking at some information from a source that you would not normally consider valid, but if it checks out, then the information is valid. Looking at information that comes out from a you know respected journalistic source and realizing it's all bullshit. But it's important that we don't reflux to one side or the other. Only the vaulted gatekeepers of true journalism can be trusted, or none of the vault keepers of true journalism can be trusted. There'll be a lot of that theme in today's show, and it is by synchronicity. I didn't plan it that way, but I can tell you right now. We're going to talk about quite a few things that bring that into play. Before we do, though, it is Monday, therefore it is time to discuss the Monday disaster scenario. Yes, Jack Spirgo here with another Monday disaster scenario. As always, remember, I now put the disaster scenarios on YouTube, and I do that because by sharing these small segments, you may be able to open up more people to the concepts of preparedness than having them listen to an hour, hour and a half, sometimes two hour long podcast. But those of you watching on YouTube that think, hey, this sounds pretty cool, I'd like to know more about stuff like this, just remember, check out the survivalpodcast.com. There's over 1,500 episodes now of all things self-reliance, self-sufficiency, independence, and personal liberty oriented, uh, and certainly preparedness as well. Today's scenario, of course, we review last week's scenario first. I give you my thoughts on last week's scenario, and then I give you this week's scenario. Last week's scenario was the first scenario that wasn't actually a disaster at all. It was really more uh, from the standpoint of uh, let's examine a situation we currently have to deal with and talk about how we deal with it. And I'll try to do more scenarios like that in the future because they may be very uh, critical and important to learning and reasoning. And as I said earlier in today's show, 
uh, talking about the, uh, the theme running through today's show and the impact of things like the printing press in the 14 and 1500s and the dissemination of information. A common theme sort of runs through this. So last week's Monday Prepper scenario was we live in a world where those in power are constantly engaged in disinformation and distraction campaigns. At the same time, there's a tremendous amount of good information and technological information available. How can we empower young people to be critical thinkers so that they can both learn from uh, the new information that's out there and filter out the majority of useless, distracting, misleading, and downright deceitful information? That's actually a very deep, deep question, and I could do an hour and a half on critical thinking and, and mining information, and I, I probably will at some point in the future, and I certainly have in the past. But the short answer to this is the very first thing is that we need to teach our, our children that if they see something that immediately gives them an emotional reaction to check the emotion at the door and verify the facts and then examine both sides of the issue. That's the very first thing because the second step which should be the first step for us as adults, is a little more difficult for children to get their mind around. And that is to begin, stop listening to people in the first place that don't affect you. And to begin to ask your own questions. I think kids are good at the question-asking part, so it's where to start with them. And start making them realize, instead of being told what's important, you need to start asking yourself what's important to you. As parents, the challenge is, how do we do that without creating kids that think the only thing that's important is getting to the next level on an Xbox game. Well, limiting the amount of time they get to play that dead-gone thing in the first place might be a good way to go. But the truth is we need to learn to trust our children. We need to stop trusting the establishment that tells us the children need to be put into this one-size-fits-all container we call a public education system, begin to take responsibility for the education of our children ourselves, and understand that a child's first teacher, well, it's not the parent. It's the child themselves. Has anybody ever said that to you before? I really wish they had. I, I doubt they had, though. My true belief is that there is no such thing as a teacher in the way that we think of it. Because we think of a teacher as a person that takes information and gives it to a student or puts it into a student makes a student learn. It's not how human beings work. We learn what we want to learn. We learn what we're interested in. We learn what we find motivation to learn. The job of a teacher is more of a guide and a motivator. Not really the, the job of an instructor the way that we understand the word. So first of all, we also need to make sure that we're teaching our children that just because someone has a title and is telling them something's true doesn't mean that it's true. And trust their inner learner that it will come out and it will avail itself of information based on interest, then we need to cultivate those interests. And uh, we need to not belittle the questions a child has that seem to not really be that important at the time. If it's important to them, it's important to their learning. As they get older, I think we need to teach them about the trivium, grammar, rhetoric, and logic. And I think one of the greatest things we can do to empower our children and ourselves is learn about every fallacy that's out there, every every logical fallacy, uh, every type of way that people are misdirected with information, from the Nirvana fallacy to uh, to the straw man fallacy, and there's there's just dozens, hundreds really of fallacies. And if if people actually understand what a fallacy is and how the different fallacies work and how they're used both for ill intent and by the well-meaning that have been deceived by them themselves, we end up with a generation of people that start questioning everything. 
And that's the real answer. Make them question everything. See, I think that the danger in alternative media is we decide, well, if it's on NBC, MSNBC, CBS, CNN, Fox News, what have you, it has to be false. Well, they've done that to themselves by providing so much false information. But if we just turn our back on everything that's said through mainstream media or alternative media or any source, then we're really making a mistake because there's a lot of truth buried in all the fiction, a lot of fiction buried in all the truth. It's up to us to start asking our own questions, finding our own answers, Stop letting the mass media world puke down our throats like a bunch of birds that are not just, you know, baby birds that are sitting in the nest waiting for something to be given to us. Because that's the problem that we have. That's how we behave. We act like not only do we want the, the answers to the questions delivered, but we want the questions defined for us. If you define your own question, you will define your own answer. Your children follow your lead. If you want to know why the average person in America doesn't take responsibility for themselves and their own actions and feel like, in the words of Homer Simpson, it's everybody's fault but mine, people follow the example of the leadership around them. And the example of the leadership around us today is it's everybody's fault but mine. Anytime anything happens to any of our leaders out there, they never step up and say, I screwed this up, I made this mistake, and I'm going to make it right. Instead, they point out how the press leaked information they shouldn't, or the other parties at fault, or what have you, and we follow their example as the sheep of this nation. Well, your children follow your example. If you want your children to think critically... The biggest answer and the simplest answer to this entire scenario is be a critical thinker and discuss your critical thinking with your children and at the same time you discuss it at their level so they understand it, use words occasionally to bring it up to a higher level. They'll reach as high as you set the bar for them. They want to be like you, so be the example and you won't have a lot to worry about. This week's prepper scenario, we're going back to a disaster type scenario, something going wrong, but not the end of the world zombie apocalypse, things that actually happen every year to real people right here in the United States and around the world. Today's uh, disaster, and if you live somewhere there's not an ice storm, pretend there could be, or pretend it's just another event that causes the same result. A major ice storm hits, everyone in your general area is highly restricted in movement, You are okay due to your preps. The timeline is about five to ten days without power, very limited transportation, if any at all, and no, re -abil no ability to resupply. So you might be thinking, so what's the scenario? I'm good to go. Here's the scenario. Please don't answer the scenario your own way. Please be in the scenario when you give me your answer. How do you determine who to assist in your neighborhood and community? And how do you use this as a teaching moment without berating them or going into, I told you so? See, when we have disasters around us, we have the opportunity to reach out and help others. There's a right way and a wrong way to do that, and in the end, we're all limited. Now, we're not talking about the end of the world. We're not talking about the zombie apocalypse. We're not talking about, hey, if I tell them that I have food, there'll be a thousand people here tomorrow. We're talking about an ice storm. We're talking about the old lady down the road that watches your kids while you go to work and you, you have a couple hours, you need the kids watched. You're not going to let her starve, are you? If you are, turn my channel off. You're a jackass and I don't want you. Yes, I mean that. If you'd let the old lady down the road from you that watches your kids when you're at work go hungry in a disaster, I do not want anything to do with you. If I met you in person, I'd like to smack you with a large frozen fish, preferably something in the salmon family. For everyone else... How do you figure out exactly who you can help and what you can do for them?
And what can you do in that limited mobility situation? You're not going to get your car and drive around. That's kind of the whole point. But it's likely there'd be members of your community, friends and neighbors who need your assistance. And because you're prepared, you're more in place to provide that assistance. Comment below in the video comments or at the blog for episode 1502 and let me know how you would handle this scenario. And please share these scenarios with others, unless you're a jackass and will let the old lady go hungry on your street. Then please go to your nearest mirror, look at yourself, and realize you have a lot of work to do on yourself. And please do consider uh, sharing the YouTube segments with folks. Uh, usually they show up within a day or two after the episode. Before we get into your questions and comments today, let's go ahead and uh, remind you real quick to consider becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. You do that, you help support the show. You can learn more by going to the Survival Podcast and clicking on the Members Brigade banner or clicking on uh, the Members tab at the top. But the basic deal is you get a bunch of really great discounts, you get a bunch of really great content, And it comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. You can join for a year for 50 bucks. You can join for a month for five bucks. And there's several other options in between there. And uh, if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, or firefighters, you qualify for a discount. Email me before, not after you join. Put service discount TSPC, service discount TSPC in the subject line, and tell me about your service in one or two sentences. Anyway, with that, let's get into the. Uh, the feedback segment of the feedback show. And uh, the first thing that I have for you today is something I've heard from a lot of people about. People are freaking out. The end of the world is here. Oh, my God, it's over. The financial collapse has begun. Ah, death and destruction. Oh, no. Because the Swiss have unpegged the Swiss franc from the euro. Okay, the first thing we need to do before we all panic and run out and jump off the Empire State Building and kill ourselves like the stockbrokers never did after the uh, Great Depression and you were lied to about it and believed it all the way through your life is realize something. They went back to what they were doing three years ago. Yep, that's the uh, the major change is that the Swiss have returned to the way they ran their money for, well, ever uh, and just stopped running their money this way three years ago. It's not without its consequences. I don't want to understate uh, the issues at hand with this. And John Pugliano on the Wealth Studying Podcast has one of the best looks at it that I've seen. In fact, the most rational and realistic look at this and the best understanding of the complexities of the problems it creates uh, and the volatility that it creates of anybody that I've seen cover this yet. So I'm just going to put a link to his 20-minute show on this and about... 60 to 70% of that show is, is about this issue, and you can listen to that if you want to go into deeper things. The summary, though, is you know, there's a lot of people that were borrowing money from the Swiss because it was pegged to the euro and because the interest rates were very low. As soon as they decoupled it, the franc got stronger, and because of that, the, the cost of the debt goes up. Okay, And the basic understanding of that is if, if you're holding a debt in francs, but you're paying it in euros, but the two are locked, And you have a zero interest rate, yay, great, or a 0.1% interest rate, yay, great, okay. Well, if they decouple the two and the value of the franc goes up by 20%, the cost of your debt just went up by 20%. And that's the major impact right there. And it's something that nobody's really talking about but, John, if you want to understand more about it, go there. My bigger thing, though, is 
This is what's going to happen. It'll cause some turmoil and upheaval and some economic problems for people that are leveraged against Swiss debt. And again, this is not just big equity traders. There's a lot of small timers that like mortgage their house against a Swiss bank uh, in Europe, and and now their their debt is costing them more. Now it rocketed up like 30%, and it, it immediately corrected. It that was a, a knee jerk reaction to this. Uh, and there's, but it's still way, way up. And I, I expect that it'll correct more, but it's going to stay elevated because, frankly, everybody knows that the Swiss currency per unit is worth more uh, than it than it's been, you know, uh, capped by the euro. It's worth more than a dollar. Right? You'd rather have your money there than here or, or in Europe. And the primary limitation to that is, well, the biggest way to get your money into the Swiss economy is through buying their debt. So buying Swiss bonds and. They're not a very debt-laden country, or they couldn't afford to do this. See, if you have a lot of debt, you don't you don't want your currency stronger. You want your currency weaker because it costs you less to pay off your own debt and your own currency. So by being a low-debt-burden nation, the Swiss can afford for their currency to bump up like this without putting themselves into a tailspin, and it does more damage to your, their neighbors than it does to them. But in the end, they have a right to run their currency their way. So I just I don't see an issue here long-term. If this was the only thing going on, I do not believe this is the only thing going on. I think that this is paving the way for something I've been talking about for a long time. If you're the Swiss government, you've become very wealthy and very stable with a very simple policy for a very long time. We don't care who you are, we'll deal with you. We don't care what your internal problems are as long as you don't bring them to us. We don't care who your friends are. We don't care who your enemies are. We do business with everybody as long as you do not make us your enemy. That is all. That is the pretty much the stance the Swiss government has had toward the entire world. We are neutral. We don't want to get involved in your bullshit. All we want is to do business with you. And one of our really good things we do business with is banking. And if you'd like to put your money here, please do so. We'll pay you fair interest rates up until recently with all this other crap going on in the world and the Swiss getting too commingled with it. And your money will be safe and secure, and we won't tell anybody else about your money. We'll give you a very private style of banking as well. And until not that long ago, even you know rudimentary blue-collar workers, if they wanted to, could open up Swiss bank accounts and have no problem doing just that and having a store of wealth in, in a country that was known for its neutrality, that paid a fair interest rate on money, And all of that has kind of been dissolved with this this new world order cabal. There's no words around it. That's what it is. It isn't necessarily the Illuminati are coming to kill your children, but it is a new world order. If we actually take those three words and, and break down their meaning, a new way in which the world orders itself and how it governs itself in between nations. And it's made it difficult for any nation to do that especially when the wealthiest nation in the world, the United States of America, has made it all but impossible for its citizens to do business with the Swiss banking system, unless through the really super rich people that the government claims all the regulations are for, even though those regulations do not apply to those super rich people. You got it? I believe that Switzerland would very much like to return things financially to the point where everybody and anybody that had a little extra money that they wanted to keep safe and earn a decent return on would put it in Switzerland. So how do you do that now? You do it with Swisscoin, of course. Yes, see, Swisscoin. Uh, they may not call it that, but it will be a Bitcoin-like electronic currency issued by the Swiss government and backed by the Swiss government that anybody can buy. And effectively, it will be the same as banking in Switzerland, but yet you will not have a bank account. Uh, I believe they will come up with some way 
to issue a return simply for holding it, thereby making it like a bank. Or by creating some sort of a vault system, similar to something that Coinbase does now, where you move your money into a vault, and where the Swiss banks can actually pay a fee in return for holding your Swiss coin, or whatever they call it, in the vault, right? Like a vault finance fee, but it gets paid to you instead of you paying them. Uh, and in essence, return to a world where the Swiss can offer you a good return on your money, offer you privacy, offer you security, and offer you the stability of a neutral nation. That's going to be how they're going to market it, even though they won't market it directly that way. This will be an indirect marketing campaign. They'll say they're going this way because it's better for the country, better for their people, whatever, but it'll just be the case that an American citizen can buy Swiss coin, probably with Bitcoin or Litecoin or God knows what else, and once it's bought, it's bought. What you do with it's your business. But if you'd like added security, here's our method of added security. And there may be new 2.0, 3.0 protocols that come out as part of this that sweeten the deal, so to speak. But in a way, it'll be actually letting the world partake in the, the, the good things in the Swiss economy without actually moving to Switzerland, becoming a Swiss citizen, and, and thereby becoming a burden on the Swiss government. Because the, the Swiss government, for all the things they do right, is also very socialist um, and very much a, a, a country that doles out an awful lot to its citizenry, and it's created a very high cost of living in Switzerland. Uh, I, I believe it's Zurich that is the most expensive city to live in in the world. Uh, so they cannot have a, a, a huge immigration into this country. They don't want it, plus they can't afford it because of how they run their nation. They run their nation because they're attractive to outside dollars. Uh, or outside monetary units, and the more attractive they become, the more they can run their little their little uh, utopian socialist experiment there in the Alps, and um, that's what they want to do. So I think that's what this is. You can't come out with something like a Swiss coin and be pegged to the euro. Not if it's going to become the national currency or linked to the national currency. It may be we, we still have the franc, but the franc and this coin. STC or whatever they want to call it on the exchange, are linked, arm in arm. They go peg up and down together. They stay together. They do the same thing together. There's basically more units of the franc. Um, and they're in this digital virtual world. And this gives our citizenry and the rest of the world that wants to use our currency the flexibility of using electronic payment systems without all of these gateways and expensive things. I think the Swiss are, are headed there. I could be wrong. I'm not going to give you one of these. I absolutely guarantee it, Jack Spirico predictions. But I think it's by a preponderance of the evidence and everything I've looked at and feedback that I have gotten from a few of my you know, limited inside sources, but there's a few that I have. I'm going to tell you that's what I think this is. It's priming the pump for a Swiss digital currency that will effectively make banking in Switzerland something that everybody and anybody can do. And it would behoove the Swiss to do that, and there's really nobody in the world that can do anything about it. Um, trying to mess with Switzerland is tr like trying to publicly spit in the face of a nun holding an orphan and explain why it's okay. And by the way, the nun has and knows how to use an AK-47. You just can't get away with it. It just can't be done. And uh, that that's where I think we're headed there. So I'll leave it at that point for now. But if you want more on the Short-term uh, volatility consequences, listen to the John Pugliano piece on it. 
All right, so the next one that came in came in from Derek. Derek says, hi, Jack, just want to see if you can look into this. I'm trying to find out more info. It's on a website called Medic Kidnap, and it's about seven homeschool children uh, being taken by CPS because the father had an unapproved mineral supplement. Um, the first thing I did was track the source story. I appreciate when people are putting out websites about individual niches. I recommend that people do it. But when I get into something this um, complicated, because this is very complicated, it's not just about the children being seized here, I try to go to the source story, and then I'll come back to the alternative source. Uh, so I'll put a link to both the original uh, blog post sent to me and the, the source article, which, to be fair to the uh, the niche set site, is is cited as the source, which is great. So that, that tells me that everything's probably been legitimately reported so far. Um, but there's a, a tendency to have some knee-jerk reactions without the logical, critical thinking here. Um, let me read to you the story uh, from KARC4, uh, which is ArkansasMatters.com is their website. This is a news site that I listened to the local news from quite a bit when I lived in Arkansas, and they're, they're pretty fair uh, overall. Uh, and their coverage of things, although they are controlled by the same people that put out all the AP reports and have everybody read the same thing. But I found them to be reasonable, at least in their local coverage. Hot Springs, Arkansas, which, again, you guys know, some of you know I used to live right there. A miracle mineral treatment alleged to be a remedy for cancer and AIDS is at the center of a law enforcement search warrant. The investigation ended in the removal of seven children from their home in Garland County, Arkansas. Um, the family has cried foul, saying only the father has taken it, and mostly it's used for purifying water for their garden. The substance in question is referred to as MMS, or Miracle Mineral Solution. The FDA has weighed in on the substance, citing serious health concerns, reporting that it can turn into a potent bleach and cause nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea if taken. The Stanley family, however, says it wasn't grounds for the way they were treated during a search Monday, 112, uh, night that ended uh, with their seven children taken away. Policeman here, policeman there, uh, Hal Stanley pointed, standing on his front porch, over here on the other side of Rhodesville of policemen. Stanley opened his door Monday afternoon to find a warrant waiting for him, and his home was surrounded by state and Garland County agents. It said, we're here to search your house, Stanley explained. Hal and his wife, Michelle, were kept outside for hours while officers searched the home uh, with their seven children inside. Hal said, if they had asked me if I had MMS, I'd say yes and give it to them. Hal insists he, he only takes a supplement and he uses MMS as a water purifier for his garden. The garden is part of the Stanley's way of life. They avoid most contact with the government. The parents have, had, have homeschooled their nine children, two of which have graduated and gone on to a dirt farm. No, gone on to college, just saying. The Stanleys keep to themselves or generally self-sustained and consider themselves preppers. He added there's never been any beer or liquor. They say they've never had a run-in with the law before. Quote, unless they stop to buy vegetables, no, Hal claimed. I've never had even had a speeding ticket. The Stanleys say since they, they since the night they had their children taken, friends and relatives have called and shown support. Neighbors like Norman Blonde ha, uh, saw the activity Monday and couldn't fathom why so many law enforcement vehicles surrounded the property. We've seen the family grow up, Bond said. You know, you know, you sound, you know. 
You know you know the sound of children playing and laughing. You see them jumping on the trampoline. The search did, did find containers labeled MMS, but Hal insists the children haven't had any. He says he only uses it for the alleged health benefits and his garden. During the search, Stanley's... Um, hold on. During the search, Stanley's say each child was taken to the ambulance on the scene for a medical examination, Hal explained. They were saying the children looked healthy and everything looked good. According to Michelle... Uh, one of the agents spoke to her about the living conditions in the house. Oh, this is nice, and your kids are great, she said. Uh, that's That was what was giving us hope. This whole thing was going to be over in a few minutes. About 9.30 that night, however, things changed. Suddenly the door opened, and there were six or eight of them came into the door, marched in there. House showed, uh, house showed fully armed sheriffs, and people stood there and said, we're taking the children for 72 hours. DHS won't comment on, confirm, or deny any particular investigation, but did confirm, uh, did confirm that if the children are taken, the agency has 72 hours to have an emergency order signed by a judge. The court then has an additional five days to hold probable cause hearing while the fate of the children will be decided. As the children were removed from the home, Hal and his wife, Michelle, say they emotionally asked who made the decision. Hal said, and finally a young man from the sheriff's department raised his hand and said, I did, and I'm proud of the decision. Michelle worries about her children. They've never been away from us in any kind of setting like that. Now, the truth is, as hard as it is to say this, we have to wait and see what happens before we flip out and say that these children are actually taken permanently because right now they're not. But this is not good for this family. Uh, CPS is not the one with the burden of proof at this point. The family is. That's the case we've seen uh, before. My problem, once again, is the state even has the power to do this, to bring that much armed force uh, with a search warrant, things like that. But as much as, you know, it, 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 it's easy to get on the bandwagon with this stuff, this is not the typical way that an investigation of this source takes takes place. I wonder if there's more at play and these people aren't either as innocent as they claim to be or there's a crossed wire and these people are being confused with somebody else. I don't know. Is this guy selling this stuff? Not that that's illegal or anything, but how the hell... Does something get blown up this big from something this small? There's another thing that we have to do here that's very difficult for people to do in these scenarios. We have to take the Miracle Mineral Supplement product, put it over on this shelf, and put the charges of child endangerment on this shelf. So whether or not the mineral supplement is dangerous for children to take, did they take it or not? If they didn't, doesn't even matter at that point. Doesn't it? It's not illegal substance. It's not a drug. If it wasn't being given to the children, whatever you think about it, doesn't matter. What's been done to this family is, a, is an outrage. And if it's only centered on this one thing, like the like it seems to be right now, this is a travesty, and people should have their heads rolled and be fired over this. And the law enforcement officer that's proud of himself, again, he's one of these people that needs to be smacked in the face with a large frozen fish, preferably something from the salmon or muscalunge pike family. Something like that. Um, with a caveat. If you are of the, the statist persuasion, and most law enforcement is, at least to a degree, and you are investigating this, and you believe these children are being given this substance, and you look up what it is, and you believe hook, line, and sinker, everything bad said about it, you probably would do it too. And the things being said about it aren't necessarily wrong. So at that point, we got to determine, is this stuff being given to children or not? And is it safe or not? And the answer to all of that is, I don't know. 
again, it, it troubles me. I am deeply concerned that the state, with such minimal evidence, especially with a medical examination done, verifying the children are healthy and safe and the living conditions are adequate, can go take these children. I do not think for a minute the fact that this family is independent, homeschools their children, and doesn't want to be involved with government has nothing to do with this. I, don't, I believe this is all mashed together. And the problem is when things get mashed together, it gets, us very, it gets very hard for us as liberty-centric people to separate them. So what was actually going on in the home? How were the children being treated, etc.? I don't know, and you don't either. And we have to wait for a follow-up on this to see what the hell is going on. And I'm sure more information will come out, and it covers it when it does. What we can definitively look at is this MMS stuff and decide, is this stuff being something that's being vilified because it's effective, Or is it being legitimately vilified? As I said, in the dissemination of information and figuring out what's real and what's not real uh, in our world today, you can't just say because it's anti-establishment, it's good. Or because it's pro-establishment, it's bad. Or because it's anti-establishment, it's bad. right? Or because it's, because it's, it's pro-alternative, it's good. Not everything in the alternative health industry is good. What this stuff actually is, is something that turns into a very concentrated bleach solution when you mix it with an acid. It's what it is. And it's claimed by its manufacturer to cure everything from HIV to cancer and everything else. Because if you take a bleach solution and take these pathogens and put them in a Petri dish together, it kills the pathogens. Well, there's no one in modern medicine that would tell you that if you put bleach with most pathogens, it doesn't kill them that fast. It doesn't mean you can start down in Clorox. My personal opinion, and it is only an opinion at this place, point, and I only have so much information to make this with, but based on spending an hour that I did not plan to spend this morning researching MMS and what it actually is and getting as many sources as I could on it, and all of the positive sources just say, oh, it's good, trust us, okay? Or look, here's a lab report that proves that bleach kills a, a, an HIV cell. No doubt, we know that. Um, doesn't mean it goes in your body. There's no... Medical, scientific proof whatsoever that this stuff is safe for ingestion at all. None. That I can find. I think the manufacturer is a rip-off artist quack. And I don't just think he's like, some rip-off people that are touting a cure for something really believe that it works and they're just too stupid or ignorant or they've been misled or they've seen circumstantial evidence that's led them to that and they're really not bad people. They believe in what they're doing. I don't think so. I think this guy knows he is a scam artist piece of crap. That's and, But again, it's my opinion, and I'm being very clear. It's my opinion based on a preponderance of the evidence that I've examined thus far. I wouldn't take this stuff. And I don't think you should either. And I'm going to explain it to you in a way that I think will make that clear if you're one of these people that wants to tell me how good it is for everybody and everybody should be taking it. It would cure the world of all diseases, and that's why the pharmaceutical companies are using the government, blah, 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 blah. I'm just going to tell you what it is, how it does, and, and, and how it's supposed to be used. It is MMS is a solution of 28% sodium chloride in distilled water. The product contains essentially the same ingredient as industrial-strength bleach before activation with a food-grade acid. All right? And when you activate it with a food-grade acid, it becomes more effective. So you can then say, well, if you take this stuff and put it in a Petri dish with the AIDS virus or uh, what's uh, malaria or hepatitis or the flu, or the cold, 
or whatever, a cancer cell, it will kill it. Well, a lot of things will kill those things. That doesn't mean you can ingest them. And the way I want to turn this around for you so you can evaluate it using your own brain, if it was being used as an additive in, in food products, would you be okay with it? If they were taking a 28% solution of sodium chloride and putting it in your food, and you knew that it would be activated to higher potency levels and higher effect efficacy in what it does, whenever it was consumed in conjunction with citric acid or just about any other acidic product like a vinegar, so most food sooner or later would combine, would you not turn around and say, well, they're putting this poison in our food? And if you feel that way about it when it comes to you from that angle, and you feel different about it when it comes to the other angle, then you have to justify the logic between the two in your mind with more information. So before you would get out on an on a, a anti-campaign or a pro-campaign of this stuff, I challenge you to do your own research. I've done enough at this point, and unless someone can give me something clear and conclusive to the contrary or more to the pro, to determine that this is basically a toxic substance that should not be ingested by human beings. And that I can find no proof whatsoever, medical or scientific, that it's effective or safe for human consumption. But we have to separate that from, so this guy's drinking bleach. If you drink bleach, does that mean that CPS should be able to, to seize your children? And was this guy given any kind of medical examination? Is it harming him? Because just because it's a toxic substance doesn't mean it's doing you any real harm. If it's consumed in small enough quantities, you might be suckered into giving up your money for a worthless piece of crap that if taken at higher levels can make you sick. But if we were all harmed by every ingestion of every toxic substance, we'd all be dead. Because there's a hell of a lot of toxic substances being put in our food by companies like ConAgra and Bear and Monsanto and Nabisco and Nestle. And, and, and every other, and Lays, and every other manufacturer out there is putting poison in our food on a daily basis. It's a matter of how much your body can handle before it actually does you any harm. So has this guy done any harm to his kids? And likely not. There's, but this is very complex. And it, you know, you might say, well, it's not complex, Jack. The state shouldn't be able to take this guy's kids like that. No, I agree with that. But the whole mess now is very complex. And sorting it out, is going to be difficult. And I think the biggest thing for us to learn here, because what do we do? We focus on our areas of effectiveness. We focus on our circles of influence, on our circles of concern. I am concerned that these, this, guy's, these, this guy's children were taken from him. But I have very little influence over that. My influence is looking at the situation, what does it teach me? And one of the main things it teaches me is to be careful what I put into my body. And just because it comes from another source that I, I deem is maybe more credible than the FDA, which all but the biggest shysters I pretty much consider to be more credible than the FDA, doesn't mean that it's okay. And in this case, I consider this guy less credible than the FDA based on my investigation. If you have any direct experience with this product and you have any valid scientific um, support or valid scientific evidence that's not generally available, It's on Wikipedia and on the FDA website. Don't send it to me. I already know. Uh, but any independent research that's done on this product for the pro or the anti that's actually legitimate research, I'd like to hear about it. Otherwise, let's move on. Here's a uh, totally different... Actually, before I go on, I want to make sure in that last segment that I'm very clear that I support this family in getting their kids back. 
I don't know what I can really do. And right now, I don't know enough about what's gone on. That's what I was trying to convey. They do have a Facebook page. It is in the show notes as well. You can like it and follow the progress there. On that page, I've, I've seen they now have legal counsel. They're getting some help. Uh, there's a lot of things going on to help this family get their kids back. If there's a way we can support that, I'll do it. But right now, I just don't see what we can individually do other than bring awareness to it. All right, going on now, as I said, today's show seemed to just end up with it being critical thinking, critical analysis being necessary to answer these questions. I guess that's always the case, but today it seems more so that these supposed truths and are they true and what do the truths actually mean if they are true seem very high in today's feedback. Um, this one comes from Leslie. It says, I've read that food a hundred years ago had roughly five times more nutrition than food today due to modern agriculture and transportation. If growing your own food will yield a little more nutrition than store-bought, how long do you think it will take for organic gardening and permaculture ethics to produce nutritional food, the nutritional food value we had a hundred years ago? Love the show. Thank you for being awesome. Leslie in Alaska. Um, This is like not that easy of a question to answer, and I think I want to start out with how long does it take us as a gardener to be able to produce nutritionally dense food when it comes to vegetables and fruits? Because doing it at the backyard level is certainly easier than doing at the, uh, the, the production level. And I also understand what has and what has not declined in our food supply and where the biggest nutritional deficiencies are at, and why they're there. Now, the first thing we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, what, what, where does the nutritional value of food come from? What are all the ways that we develop or, or acquire any nutritional value from food? And we can actually break those down into only six things. Carbohydrates, fats, protein, vitamins, minerals, and water. You say, well, there's trace minerals. There are minerals, Okay. Just that's how it works. So there's not a lot of protein in most vegetables, and that seems to be what we're talking about here. Some have some, but most have very little. Uh, or you know, get into legumes and stuff, and they have a significant amount of certain types of proteins. But if we look at the protein value of our vegetables and fruits over the last hundred years, or even the last twenty years, with a significant degrade in, in nutritional value over the last twenty, thirty years, even not just a hundred, uh, it's pretty much the same. If we look at fat. There's very little fat in any vegetable or fruit. It's something they just don't have a lot of. There's a few places and sources we can get some oils and stuff like that, but most of our fats come from animal sources. So other than vegetable oils and things like that, but the fat content, product to product to product, is pretty much the same. The carbohydrate is the greatest, car, uh, the greatest caloric yield. It comes out of fruits and vegetables, and it's pretty much constant. An apple from a, a, a conventional orchard in Washington today has about the same amount of calories, most of which is in the form of carbohydrates or sugars, uh, from uh, compared to an apple of similar size and shape from you know 50, 100 years ago. Uh, it may be that the bricks levels were slightly higher, and there would have been a little bit more sugar in a 100-year-old apple, but... Uh, In the end, it's pretty dead gone close in carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Uh, vegetable to vegetable to vegetable, fruit to fruit to fruit, legume to legume to legume, grain to grain to grain. Hasn't changed much. If we look at the vitamins, there's some decline, but it's not as significant as you've been led to believe. It, 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 pretty much an orange still has an ass load of vitamin C in it, 
because an orange is mostly made up of citric acid, which is in itself vitamin C. Uh, a carrot still has a, a, a very significant amount, let's say, of, uh, of niacin in it. Um, and not much less than it did, you know, years ago. Where the, so you see what I'm doing? Like, we're going through all the places we can get our value from. Let's skip one and jump to water. Well, vegetables hold water, and we get water in a lot of other ways too. So the, the problem isn't there. So if there's been a decline in our vegetables, you see how you do this logically instead of just, oh, they screwed everything up. Where, where's the loss, and what does it take to fix it is what we're getting at. So I'm not saying there's no loss in the vitamins in our food, but it's not as significant as the loss of the last one, and that's where nutritional density comes from in our vegetables and fruits, and that's minerals. The mineral density is what has gone to pot. And it's, it's, it's also how you get misled. So the reason I went through it this, this way was so you can see how you can be misled with facts. Misled with facts, okay? So one of the main themes that conventional agriculture has been on for really heavily the last five years is that organic food in general is no more nutritious than conventionally grown food. That their nutritional profile is pretty much the same. And people say, is that true? It depends. If you're looking at an organic grown carrot from Baja, California, Baja, Mexico, which is where most of the organic carrots in America come from today, and you're looking at a carrot grown at a conventional farm somewhere else in America or right down the street from that, the answer is there isn't much nutritional difference. Shocked? No, it's tr it's the truth. It's also very misleading. The reason it's the truth is most commercial, organic, mass-produced vegetables and fruits are simply sprayed or fertilized with something organic versus that's organically certified versus something that is not. It's not necessarily the case that they're building soil, developing soil nutrition, and things like that. They put whatever organic form of nitrogen you can get to put on it, or phosphorus or potassium. So the problem with conventional agriculture is not so much that they're using NPK fertilizer, it's that they're relying on it. If I can derive that NP and K, that, 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 that you know, uh, nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus from organic sources and put it into some other form of uh, thing that I could dump on the soil, I can do just as much damage to the soil and the soil life or just as, just as little to make it function as I can with conventional fertilizers. And the majority of organic food that you see not at a farmer's market from a small grower, but in the, in the mainstream markets, the mass-produced organic food, most of it is simply fertilized with the organic counterpart. It's like replacement therapy with, with herbs. You have a headache, instead of an aspirin, you take white willow bark. It's still the same main underlying ingredient, that's addressing the headache, and we're not fixing the problem that's causing the headache. In other words, headache is not because of a deficiency in aspirin. A headache is not because of a deficiency in Motrin or Tylenol. Right Now, all three of those substances can help mitigate a headache, but they don't cure the reason you have the headache. So food that doesn't grow well can be made to grow well with supplementing nutrients but it doesn't cure the problem as to why the food, which should just grow on its own, isn't anyway. And that's about soil biology and actually having living 
breathing soil. Soil that acts like a pond. Soil that when we take it and put it under a microscope is full of microorganisms, microarthropods, fungi, nematodes, etc. And the right kind. Those that lend toward the acidic side of things. Those that lend toward the the aerobic, the not the anaerobes. If we look under soil under a microscope, and there's lots of little critters in there, but they're all anaerobes. This is very bad, very deeply dying soil. And if we look under there, we see lots of aerobic activity, microarthropods, nematodes, etc. Then what we have is living soil. And in that living soil, living plants produce this thing called an exudate. And that exudate is a little ooze, a little squirt comes out. It's basically a sugar. A little bit of fat and a whole lot of sugar and some carbo some more complex carbohydrate. It's a cookie. It's a cake. It's a candy. And it produces that little drop, that little dollop. And it doesn't do it because it's a nice, it's a nice carrot or it's a happy celery root or whatever. It does it because it goes, I need something. I want something. I want selenium. I want manganese. I want chromium. I need this to further my agenda to grow into a big, healthy, strong celery plant. Got it? So it does it because it wants something. And it's because there's lots of chromium there. The amount of chromium necessary to have a healthy acre of plants probably fits in a teaspoon. You don't need very much of it. It's there. It's not, the mineral, the soil minerals are not gone. They're not, though they're no longer bioavailable. Simply dumping more of them onto the soil won't get them into the plant. See, that's how it works. The plant needs this relationship with the soil life. So the, so the, the, the celery plant or the bean plant or whatever that needs a specific mineral, silicon, like it's, it's a silicon dis, uh, uh, deficiency. It's the, like the most abundant thing in the earth's crust. How could it be deficient? It's not deficient. You can't get it. It's like being tied in a desert by four snakes, your hands and your feet, okay? And then somebody takes a glass bottle, big heavy-duty glass bottle with a nice cap on it of water, puts it in your right hand. It's right there. You can look at it. You can see it. You can almost smell it through the glass. You can see it. You can feel the... You can't get it in your mouth and you're going to dehydrate and die. That's the state of these minerals without the soil life. The plant's basically bound, and it can't access this stuff because it doesn't take it as a raw nutrient. So it makes its little cookie or cake. It makes its little exudate. And along comes along an amoeba or an arthropod or some critter, and it eats the exudate. And it also is already taken in some of these nutrients. And it, it, it dies or it defecates or it eats another critter and defecates another critter, whatever it's going to do. And that puts that mineral right next to that plant's root in a bioavailable form that the plant can then go squirt, slurp. It squirts out an exudate and it slurps up what it's looking for. And sometimes the activity is far enough away the plant can't actually reach it. But if there's good healthy fungal life for that soil, the fungi, the little fungi web, the little hairs that look like spider's webs almost, attach themselves to the plant root. And the plant gives the fungi some stuff. And the fungi says, well, I don't have selenium, but I can be a highway for it. Here, here's some selenium. Give me some more of that good stuff. And that's how the, the minerals get into the plants. 
So how long is a direct under, you have to answer that question, we have to have a direct understanding of why the minerals aren't in the plants in the first place. It's not because of GMOs. Okay? GMOs enable the process that ruins the mineralization of the plants. Yes. But it's, if you had a GMO corn growing in healthy soil, it will take up lots of minerals. Whatever a corn is capable of actually holding in a mineral, it'll take it up. If they're bioavailable in there, that plant will take them up, possibly at higher levels because of a more rapid growth rate, possibly at lower levels. It all depends. You'd have to test it. But it's not because it's a GMO plant. Okay, It's not because we put NPK fertilizer on the dirt. It's because the dirt has ceased being soil and become dirt because we're able to allow that to happen with NPK fertilizer. So we have to go back to living soil. So what that means is if you go into your backyard, you put in a garden, you use no chemicals, no poisons, no nothing, you fertilize with things like fish emulsion and things like that and worm castings and all, your food in the first year will be more nutritionally dense than the conventional food, but not that much. The soil has to have time. A couple years into it, when you stick your hands into that soil and you pull it up, you smell it. It smells beautiful. And if you take it and put it under a microscope, you see all these active little organisms going around. you got all this aerobic activity going on. And you're using compost teas, and you're using nutrient boosters, and you've got worms living in your soil, and you've got little critters living in your soil. And your plants get to the point where you see little bits of bug activity eating them, and the bug just go, gives up and goes somewhere else because the plant is so healthy, the bug no longer wants it. It's not its place to eat that plant. That plant's too healthy for it to eat. That's when you end up with high bricks levels and high nutrient density in your, your plants. So it takes you... With all but like a pre-mixed, perfect soil that's already alive, with lots of compost tea in the first year, it takes you a couple years to do it in beds to a really high level. And it's like five, six years in where it gets insane. Where like anything you put there just grows and beautiful and the food tastes wonderful. If it takes you that long, then it takes just as long or longer to, to, to do what they call remineralization of soil. But understand again, it's important to understand, it's not really the remineralization. That would mean the minerals aren't there. It's actually changing the biology so that the soil is once again alive, so that the entire process can, can restart, so the plants can re return to the symbiotic relationship that's necessary for them to take these nutrients up. That is the only way it can be done. You can't just, not sustainably anyway, put bioavailable nutrients on the plants at the levels necessary for them to take enough of them up. If you're going to do that, you'd be better off just taking the mineral supplements in the bioavailable form and drinking them. There'd be no real advantage to putting them into a celery or a carrot or an apple or a pear. The reason it works is because the plant doesn't need that much to have a high yield for you. We have to dump huge amounts of this stuff, even in a garden, down for the plants to take them up. But there's a massive amount already there. And the bioavailability is a sustainable model. Because that's how everything that grows on the planet grew in the first place, long before we were here. Because nature knows what it's doing. So how long would it take for the organic farmers of the world to return us to nutrient-dense food? Well, if you're looking to conventional organic agriculture, 
it ain't going to happen ever unless it moves more toward the permaculture ethic, more toward the sustainable ethic, and more toward the small producer and further away from the great big giant organic farm. If we're going to have broad scale availability, what we need are lots of organic growers partnering together with cooperatives that make up the volume by, by creating a centralized distribution model, but under the control of the growers. And we need hundreds and thousands of these. Not even competing with each other, but coexisting with each other just to produce enough food to start to make a dent in the choice necessary for this to happen. And we need small producers just selling locally doing these things already. And it's a challenge. And it's not easy. And there is no magic solution. And simply refraining from using toxins is not enough to improve the nutritional value of the food. Now, with all that said, if you have a choice between an organic carrot and a conventional carrot, even though the nutrition's about the same, you go with the organic. Why? Not because of its nutritional value, because it's lacking toxins. That's why. So when you read the story, so all the way full circle now, back to being misled by truth, that, that organic food is not much more nutritionally valuable than conventional food. So, there's, so that leads you to the conclusion there's no reason to pay the premium. It's not what is additionally in the food, but what's not there. What you're paying for when you buy mass-grown organic produce is the absence of chemicals and toxins and poisons, not the additional nutrient value. Now, when you go and you work with small growers who are using compost and manure teas and chop and drop methods and no-till and taking care of their soil and they're, they're selling through small distribution channels, etc., or large distribution channels made up of many small growers, you are getting more nutritionally dense food. Because if you're, if you're operating that way, the soil will come to life. And once the soil comes to life, the plant will naturally take up the minerals and the, and the, and the micro and macronutrients that it's supposed to. So that's a long answer, but it's the only way to make sure that you actually understand the answer and you understand the problem. You understand why I can't just flip a switch and make it better and why no one can. And why when you read about organic food not being much better for you, The conventional food, it's the truth and a lie at the same time. It's not much better for you in what it gives you, but it is much better for you in what it doesn't give you. Let's take another one. Um, here's another question that's, that's interesting. Um, it requires a little bit of critical thought. Nowhere near the level of what we've been through so far today. Hello, Jack. What is the value of keeping and paying for a phone landline versus a cell phone only? We keep a phone landline for various reasons, some of which are reliability, occasional fax use, DSL, though voice line is not required for DSL. We no longer answer the landline due to the high number of telemarketing calls, and virtually all calls are done on a, uh, on a cell phone. Um, there's a few. It's not as big as a, it used to be. The primary value of a landline to your phone is if you ever needed help from authority and you dialed 911, even if you can't talk, if you just knock the receiver off and mash 911 and wait, sooner or later, unless you live somewhere really far or in some special circumstance, someone's coming to figure out what's going on. So help will come. And, and the 911 center that gets your call will know exactly where you are and be able to send people exactly where you're at. And 
Um, while a lot of advancements have been made with cell phone technology uh, and VOIP technology, it is only the landline that 100% they know where you're calling from. Of course, unless the line's cut and the call can't go out in the first place. But they know when that call comes in exactly where that call came from, and they can send responders there. That, that's one of the chief advantages. Reliability is also very high. Um, phone lines are one of the last things to go down in a disaster and one of the first things to come up. It's not always the case, but it's more often the case than not. Um, it, If a, if a line goes down, a line goes down, regardless of whether it's got electric current on it or phone line on it. But there's a lot of things that can go wrong with an electrical system that aren't necessarily because of what we call backhoe fade, which is some construction operator breaking something, or a telephone pole being blown over or what have you, that don't exist in the telecom space or have higher levels of redundancy in the telecom space. So other than physical damage to the line itself, Um, where they're pretty much equals, uh, the electrical world is more subject to outage. That means the power can be off often and the phone line's still on, and the phone lines use their own power. So there's an advantage of that reliability issue. Um, those cell phones are pretty reliable, and they become more reliable every year, and that trend will probably continue. But it's two is one, one is none. You're back to there. The next thing is something that I said that you could gloss over right there. You got to know what you're doing, and I won't go deep in it today, but there's actually ways to harness the small amount of uh, direct current electricity that's on your phone line. Please don't do this, but trust me, there's a there's what's called tip and ring, which is kind of like uh, power and ground on every pair of phone wire. And uh, if you if you go into the the <laughs> the one side and you were to take the tip of that uh, that wire and use your teeth as wire strippers, which you shouldn't do anyway, but we've all probably been guilty of it with speaker wire or something like that, uh, you get a pretty good little jolt there. Uh, telecom phone systems run on what's called a negative 48 volt DC system. And uh, it's part of my prior life. You don't need to get into what all that means, but there is power there. And that power actually could be siphoned and used for small uses and needs uh, coming across that line if you know what you're doing with relative safety. And I'm going to leave it with you need to know what you're doing. You can research it. But there is this little trickle of DC power coming into your home uh, that will be there for quite a while, even if the, the central office that you're connected to, where your phone line runs back to, is out of power. They have backup power in multiple forms, uh, specifically huge battery banks that will run the system for 24 to 48 hours without even additional things like uh, generators and their own additional power sources, which many of them have. So there's all of that reliability built into it. Uh, the fax use thing, I think, is pointless. Um, there's so many electronic versions of fax, faxes, Uh, I guess maybe to fax something out in the world where that's still necessary. But whenever anybody tells me to fax something, we just throw it on our scanner and scan it and email it to them. So I, I don't really see a fax use being very valuable. Now, if you are in a situation where your Internet is provided with DSL, then it almost always makes sense to go ahead and have a phone line with it. Because the, the voice line is cheap. It's so cheap that two is one, one is none is worth having. Um, if you have a choice between DSL and a cable modem service, unless you're, unless you're making the decision out of economics, most of the time you get better performance from cable modem. 
That may not be the case where you are, but most of the time, in my experience, my cable internet has far outperformed any DSL service I've ever had. So I'm only going to DSL if that just happens to be what I can get. Or it's so compelling economically that I want to go to DSL. If I'm going to do that, I'm probably going to get a phone line. There's not a lot of valuable value to them anymore, and the truth is the phone companies don't really want to maintain them anymore, all these car repairs that are out there. Uh, it's a declining industry, uh, the landline industry. It's like selling black and white TVs today. right? There's a niche for it. There's people that think they're cool, but everybody wants a great big color flat screen TV. In fact, everybody's kind of getting into curving that screen a little bit now because it makes a cooler picture. Uh, and even some of the TVs that are state-of-the-art today are not going to be really that valuable tomorrow. They'll, they'll be really, really cheap. Uh, or nobody will even be making them anymore uh, very soon. Yeah, there's, there's coming advances in television technology that you wouldn't believe. And that's still the case with smartphones. Smartphones are uh, just growing up to start popping their pimples. We think of the smartphone as being this sleek, elegant... Uh, you know, 30-something yuppie at this point. It's well-refined and defined its life, and it knows what its purpose is, and it's all grown up, and it's got a career. Now, the iPhone, the Android phones, they're like 16-year-olds trying to pop that zit and hide it, getting ready to go on some of their first real dates. And 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 the landline is the color TV of the tele or the black-and-white tube-style TV. They'll probably be around for a lot longer. You can still find a black-and-white TV if you really want one. They don't really work well with the current system. They need some kind of backwards compatibility thing so that they can show you something that's actually coming to you in digital format now. But if you want a black-and-white TV, you can get one. And there's actually some people that want one. The landline isn't there yet, but the landline would be analogous to the, the old-school TVs that no one you can't find in a store anymore. They work. They even have digital Right? They even have the digital. You don't need the box form or whatever when they went to digital format uh, with the with the off 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 band air uh, antenna TVs. Um, but but they still got that big tube and they're heavy and like a 25 inch TV weighs like half of what your refrigerator does. That's that's the landline today. So if you want one, I don't have anything against it. But unless you're really worried about having that guarantee that responders know where you're at. Or maybe have a plan to use that little trickle of DC energy, or just see it as I'm going to have DSL anyway and it's cheap. I, I don't personally don't have one. Uh, we do have bundled with our cable service a VOIP phone line um, that we've never used ever. I, I don't even know what the number is. I don't pay attention to it. It was like if you're getting cable and internet, it actually cost us money to take away the phone service. So we're like, yeah, fine, stick it in there. And we just don't use it. We use our cell phones and Skype for everything. Let's take another one. Um, this next one comes to me from Josh and just says, keep the great work. And there's a link. And the link goes to an Inc.com uh, short video with Mark Cuban. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and play the audio of that video for you right now. Again, Mark Cuban is the outspoken billionaire owner of the Dallas Mavericks who made his money mostly in the tech space. Uh, with a company called Broadcast.com that Yahoo purchased and then didn't do anything with. And Mark took his $4 billion, thank of you, billion dollars with a B, and uh, went off and did some really great things with it. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, this guy's a hero of mine or anything, because he's not, but he's done some really awesome things as an entrepreneur, well-known on the Shark Tank. And when it comes to understanding money and business, 
This guy gets it. Um, so here he is talking about the student loan bubble, and some redneck named Jack told you similar things uh, quite a while ago. But let's hear what Mark has to say about student loans, where we're headed with them, and I'll come back with my thoughts on it. You know, college tuitions have exploded because of easy money guaranteed by um, Sally May, uh, student loans getting guaranteed. And so if any student can, um, or potential student, can borrow more and more money and it's guaranteed by um, the federal government, why wouldn't the colleges take it all? But the problem is that bubble has led to over a trillion dollars in student loan debt, which is having a significant impact Um, on the economy, and it's really holding us back in the economy's ability to grow. It's holding back housing. It's holding back apartment building. It's holding back car sales. It's holding back clothing sales. You know, any, you know, any type, anything that's not an absolute necessity, um, kids coming out of school today can't spend their money on. And I think that's a, a real problem for the economy, and I think that bubble is going to burst. I think it's inevitable at some point there'll be a cap on student loan guarantees. And when that happens, you're going to see a repeat of what we saw in the housing market when easy credit for buying or flipping a house disappeared. We saw a collapse in the price of housing, and we're going to see that same collapse in the price of student tuition, and that's going to lead to colleges going out of business. This is another example of an issue with a lot more going on in it than most people realize. First of all, I think Mark's spot on that we're looking for the bubble to pop. Now, what it means is really confusing, though. Here's why. Now, the debt of student loan debt in the United States today is a hundred and or one point two trillion dollars, one point two trillion and growing. And it's important to understand that when people say, "Well, there's private debt and there's federal debt," that's the federal debt. That's how much federal student loan debt there is. That's loans not necessarily made by the federal government, but guaranteed by the federal government. In other words, the federal government says if Joe can't pay his bill, we'll pay the lender back and we'll take we'll get the money from Joe. Now I get into what they actually do here in a minute, but that's how it works out for the lender. So the lender's getting their money. So the bubble won't pop. In exactly the same way that it did, let's say, in the mortgage crisis, this is a crisis with a built-in bailout. Yeah, I don't think anybody's ever said that before. The, 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 the educational crisis is a built-in bailout for the financier, for the banker. It does not have a built-in bailout for the universities or for the creditor. Right? So the banker's covered. Now let's talk about what the federal government does when you default on a student loan debt. What the bank, what the government does is cover the bill to the lender, then often sells you back to the lender as a bad debt and let you, you, lets them use your authority to collect on your uh, debt twice. So the financier can get double paid on a student loan if you default, if they ever make you pay, and the government never takes the money back. Yeah, because they just print the money out of the treasury and add it to the national debt and consider it part of the cost of doing business and running the program. Now, if this thing pops, it may be that they can't do that, but that's how they do it right now. Often the same institution that gets gets the debt paid by the government still gets to collect the debt long-term 
from the student, because even though the government says they're the one doing all this wage garnishing and hunting you down and tracking you down and all that, it's basically their authority is transferred over to the lender as an agent. Yay, free world. Okay, just saying. Anyway, so the problem here is not so much that the banks that loan the money won't get the money. Okay, uh, In the, the mortgage meltdown, you had a house. You couldn't pay for the house. The bank took the house as collateral. You failed to pay on the house. They said, we're going to kill you if you don't pay us. And you said, go ahead and try. And they said, well, we can't really do that, but we'll ruin your credit score. And you said, oh, well, screw you. My credit's already screwed anyway because you've been reporting me for the last six months while you're getting ready to evict me. Take the house and choke on it. Bye-bye. Then the bank was left with a house that they couldn't sell because there were too many going off at the same time and going bad. It was like trying to sell a, a, a carton with 11, 11 eggs in it that were rotten and one good one. And so they couldn't recoup their money, so the government gave them the money. The, the, they took the houses anyway, screwed over the people, and eventually got their money back twice on the other side. Now that part's similar, isn't it? Because they did repossess the house. They did sit on the house. They didn't make deals. Okay? They didn't make deals. Not the way they would have had to. There were plenty of people who said, I can't pay you now, but I can renegotiate this. The government came in and made them do it with select people, probably the worst people to make deals with. But they covered the losses on the banks. They covered the interim for the banks. And you had people walking in and going... Well, this house isn't worth what you say it's worth, but here's an offer that normally a bank would take, and the bank didn't take it. Why? Because they didn't have to, because their books were covered by the government during the interim, so they were able to wait it out and wait till the property value came back and win on both sides. Okay. But that's not the case here. The bank has given you money. right? It's not the federal government that gave you the money. The federal government guaranteed the loan. Banks make the loans. So the bank has given Tom money to get a degree in bitterness studies or whatever. Tom either did or didn't get his degree, but the money's spent. He has no house or car that they can take. He has no asset. It's collateral. His life is now the collateral. He will have any money he makes garnished for the rest of his life into his Social Security to repay the debt because the federal government guaranteed it, and they used him to guarantee the loan because they're such nice guys. The bank is getting their money, period. But... Have you seen the size of the education industry in America? Have you seen the size of the buildings on these college campuses? Have you seen the amount of money that runs through one college per year? Billions and billions. How many people are employed by that college? How many people in the town around that college have jobs that are in some way tied to the spending that goes on through and as part of that institution, that university? When this bubble pops, it could be the single biggest individual blow to the United States economy that it's ever felt, and, and the banks will still get all their money. This is dangerous. This is the most dangerous thing that we have economically to our nation right now. It is more dangerous than the national debt. It real, it's hard to get your head around, but it is. And it's because what these institutions represent in, is an industry. And at the same time, we know full well they're ripping us off. The only reason the university system is still in place, the way that it is, is because it's so valuable to the economy, even though it's ripping the economy off. It provides so many jobs. And I don't mean the jobs that people get with their degree in bitterness studies when they leave. I mean the jobs around the industry of university itself. Just look at how many kids go to a, an average college. Not even something. You go to UTA, 
University of Texas at Arlington. And it's 10,000, 20,000 kids at that school. So just running some simple numbers, the total registered students last year at UTA, University of Texas Arlington, which is just one satellite school of University of Texas. It's a fairly large one, but compared to a lot of other schools, I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a drop in the bucket. It costs about $9,000 a year to go to school there. 34,000 students, some change on the other side of all that, comes out to about $306 million a semester. $306 million a semester, and if you're not from North Texas, you probably never even heard of that school. So uh, a, thousand, a thousand million's a billion. So it takes three and a third of those size schools to equal a billion dollars a semester in tuition. This does not include books. This does not include student spending on housing, both on campus and off campus. This does not include much of the economic impact around 34,000 people coalescing in that school for the purpose of learning and thereby taking all expendable income and disposing of it into local economies. And multiply that by how many universities there are in the United States of America, you see we can have a real problem here on our hands. By the way, a lot of them cost a lot more to go to than the University of Texas at Arlington. And that $9,000 cost is for in-state students. Out-of-state students pay $18,000 a year. Uh, my nephew has been offered several uh, scholarships, academic and sports scholarships, to several colleges. Uh, these, these scholarships have ranged from $12,000 to $18,000 a year. Uh, and basically what they do is allow him to go to college for about twelve to $14,000 a year uh, in additional tuition because these are larger, more prestigious universities uh, that basically his scholarship lets him attend them for what you would attend UTA for. Yeah. That's a lot of money, folks. And what happens when all of a sudden all this ability to borrow money to go to school declines by even 10 15% what happens when the major institutions of this 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 educational world uh, have their business fall by 10 to 15% how many tenured professors might not be tenured anymore what impact does it have when you start closing universities or portions of universities across the country? What happens when finally the American people realize what a ripoff this is? How, how it's, it, it, it's insane. It's insane that a four-year education can cost a person $100,000. This makes no sense. In a world where we can take the education and we can transmit it for pennies to the whole world. Where even if a, an instructor is required to do some grading and we paid him for that, he would be paid far less. In fact, gee, a lot of those guys don't do any grading. They have teachers' assistants and, and, and aides and TAs that do all of that for them. Yeah, yeah, that college professor, a lot of times that's the case. They don't grade anything. They show up, they throw up, and they leave, and they hand out assignments, and they have this whole group of unpaid minions that do all of that work for them. Yeah, that really happens. I didn't make that up. Serious. So if you have a point where the value of the degree is declining while the cost of the degree is going up and the ability to finance the degree starts to go down at the same time that alternatives that cost significantly less, what does it do to this industry? See, that's what nobody understands. The, the crash of the student loan bubble isn't about the money not being repaid. It's about the faucet of new money shutting off. 
And how many of these colleges, pray tell, do you think have done all of their planning based on current growth curves? What does that mean? That means that when they're negotiating what the teacher's retirement funds will be, it's based on the college continuing to grow economically, not necessarily in size, but economically at the rates that it's experienced over the last 20 years because everybody knows that 20 years of return shows you a strong indicator of the future. Wah, wah. Maybe not. So you don't you think that all of these universities have set up their plans for new buildings, new hiring, teacher raises, retirement, benefits packages, all of these things around the consistent growth that they've experienced for the last two decades? What happens if it just doesn't come? Not even if it goes into major decline, like the growth just doesn't happen. You have one of the largest sectors in America on road toward oblivion, and you have the municipalities of this country, the county governments, the city governments, and the state governments, currently holding the majority of their programs together with duct tape. This is economic oblivion for our current economy. This will require a complete new adaptation, a complete new economy, when we come out the other end of it. This will not be a cakewalk. It will not be, oh, the world is over, the dollar has defaulted, everybody's going to die. But it will make, it will make 2008, 2009, 2010 look like the good old days. And it's on the way. I just, I don't know when it's going to get here, but it's on the way. And the government is basically doing a quantitative easing, easing maneuver with the community colleges. You'd say, well, they're going to give people free college. How does that help people borrow more money to go to college? One, you prop up the community college sector. Two, you put a whole... See, so let's look at this another way. See, government understands business even though it's no good at it. Okay, And it uses the same principles. It just doesn't have to be uh, limited by the same rules. So let's say you were a salesperson and you were selling something that was still in demand, but the number of people that were actually purchasing it We're going down. And I was your sales manager, and you said, look, I'm just not closing as many deals. And we went through your whole sales process, and your sales process was fundamentally sound. And I looked at each stage in it, and the efficiencies were there. And the reality is you're doing the best you can to close the people that you're talking to. You're doing your job well. You're presenting your case well. You're making your case well. You're presenting to the right people. You're doing everything right, but the number still is not high enough, and it still needs to go up. And just charging the people who are buying more ain't going to make it happen. We're not going to do that at the company level. You need to sell more. Do you know my one piece of advice to you is? We're going to work back through your funnel. This one close equals three final meetings, right? Equals ten qualifying meetings, equals X number of cold calls uh, and, and lead responses. And then at the top, you're going to have a total number of people that go into the funnel for every one that comes out the bottom as a sale. Maybe you got 50 people go into the funnel for every one that comes out. You need to put 100 in the funnel. That's how we're going to fix your problem. You're going to work harder. You're going to put 100 in the funnel. And right now, for every one sale you're getting, you should get two. Those will create additional referrals, additional opportunities, additional sideline sales, upsells, you know, back sales, etc. So therefore, they'll actually compound themselves, and 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 one sale may become not three, but two point three sales, 
an aggregate average across. All of a sudden, your numbers look good again, and you're making money. You're not fired. You keep your commission going up. Everything's wonderful. So that's what the government's going to do is increase the size of the funnel because students do all this other crap when they go to school. And students think in their head, because they've been conditioned to believe they're entitled to shit, that like whatever money you get for school should also pay for your car and your books and your housing and your food while you go to school, whether you're on campus or not. So they're trying to restart this machine before it shuts off. Our only actual hope is that people don't buy into that. This is one of those things, clear-cut case, of the higher it goes, the more it hurts when it falls. But we're at a, already at a point of like screaming, shirking, and death. But the, the hope is that we can salvage what's there, what's useful of what's there, and move most new educational uh, programs into a new paradigm that costs dramatically less, and that industry can be slowly descaled. But it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. You're going to see college professors with tenure laid off in the next recession. And it will be directly tied to this. Because trust me, when they really can't pay anymore, it's not that the banks won't get their money. It's that the new money, the new faucet of money, will get shut down. And they're going to have to do it. There's going to be no way around it. Not to mention the more people who have their lives ruined because they can't pay the debt, Even if the money's there, you're going to have less and less people willing to go out and take on the debt. And the universities of the country are not prepared for this. They are not prepared for this at all. They have, no, they have a, a, such a grasp into their current paradigm. They are so wrapped up in the belief of their, their, that they're needed. We, they, we, they need us. We don't need you. We don't. Not for 80% of the people that you produce. We don't need you. We need you for about 20% of what you do. I still want doctors in medical school. I still want lawyers in law school. I'd like lawyers to be a little bit more useful to us, but I, I, I see that. I understand that. I still want engineers who are going to build bridges and buildings going to qualified engineering training. And I don't think that, that all of that anyway can be done with correspondence courses in the Internet. I think a lot of fundamentals can, but when it comes down to the real high-level training for people like that, people are going to design an airplane. I want them in that type of setting because it's the best for that type of education. But for someone to get a degree in marketing or business administration, they maybe need 10% of the classroom time they're currently getting. And 80% of what they're learning is useless. And eventually, the market always shows you the truth. And that market foot is getting ready to come down and kick some ass right now. When you see it start to happen, trust me, protect your money. I'm not saying to do it now. I'm not saying to freak out. But I'm saying this is, of all the scenarios to cause the next major recession, this is the number one suspect. The good news is, when it gets closer, you will see it coming. This will not happen in a day. Again, it has a built-in bailout. But pay attention to it. Don't ignore it. And when you, when, you, when you see it coming, get out of the way. And that may mean, just like last time it was coming, what did I tell you? Just get out of the stock market. Just go to cash. People told me I was nuts. And 60 days later, not so nuts anymore. Uh, let's take one more and wrap up for today. 
Uh, last question today keeps us into the mode of logical analysis and critical thinking. It comes from Lane. Lane says, In what country reside the most dedicated and hardest working, productive, and efficient workers? Twice today, marketing slogans regarding Made in the USA claimed U.S. workers to be the hardest working, most dedicated workers in the world. American pride and patriotism aside, my 32 years of industrial supply experience putting me in hundreds of manufacturing plants caused me to doubt that the U.S. is number one. Lane. Um, is the average American worker, if we take our aggregate average, harder working than any other country in the world? <clears throat> Wrong answer. Is the aggregate average of productivity in the United States higher than any other nation in the world? <clears throat> As a group, are the average American workers more efficient at their productivity than any other nation in the world? <clears throat> Three swings, three strikes, you're out at the plate. In fact, in this little game, you never even really got up to bat. Um, this is feel-good marketing bullshit on one level. Uh, it, it just isn't the case. It isn't the case. And we know it's not the case. As much as we'd like to believe it, as much as we'd like to put the foam finger on from the 1980 high, uh, you know, uh, Olympics and say we are the champions, right? As much as we'd like to do that, in our heart of hearts, we know that the average American is no longer the most efficient, most productive, hardest working person in the world. Not that we can definitively say that we ever, ever were, but we can definitely say at one time that it was up there. It was up there. And we can look at why. We can look at why, and we can look at the very beginning of today's show when I talked about teaching our children by emulating, uh, by, by, by demonstrating that which we wish to have emulated. Uh, in fact, I, I'm a big fan of, of the saying, demonstrate to emulate. And what I mean by that is, if you say, well, how do I get someone else to, then demonstrate what you want them to emulate. If you want your children to always stick up for the little guy, then always stick up for the little guy when you have an opportunity in front of them. If you want your little boy to know to always open the door for, for a lady, then whenever you're there, you either make him do it or do it so that he sees you do it because he's going to want to be like you. All right? And people naturally follow leadership. And our leadership is one of apathy and entitlement in this country today. And that's why we've slid so far so fast. If you talk to people today and they're honest with you, most people feel like, I don't have the company's back because they don't have my back. And they're not exactly wrong about it either. Now, here's what I'll say for my country, though, and my countrymen. When it comes to the best among us, we're as good or better than anybody else in the world. On average, we've gone into decline. The best American workers, the best American entrepreneurs... The best American students, the best among us, are as good or better than anybody else that they'll put in front of us. We all could be, but in, in mass we've chosen not to be. But when it comes down to it, there is a certain spirit that is America. That hasn't been fully and wholly lost. There is a certain value to believing you're the best. You want to be the best in something? First believe you can be. 
And most Americans believe they can still. And so they can. If you believe you can do something, you probably can figure out how to make it happen. I don't care what the, the, the algebra test scores are with us versus Japan. Put our top 10% with their top 10% and see what happens. I don't care what the science scores are versus Germany. Put our top 10% with their top 10%. We have exceptional, exceptional people in this country. And we also have exceptional potential. It's the potential not being realized that's the problem. But no, just because something says made in America doesn't mean it's top quality. It doesn't. Depends on who was the American that made it. And what I've begun to see is the more specific the maker is to what they make, the more proud they are that they do build something in America, the more dedicated they are to their own people, the more ethically they operate, they operate the more it is true that that Made in America label matters. I wish it was like when I was a kid. And just because it said made in America, you knew it was pretty damn good. It's not that way anymore. And there are a lot of apathetic people in this country that just don't give a damn. That are just there for a paycheck to show up, to put in their time, and to go home. But there is a group within that group of the true leaders. Many of them are the leaders that are never named. You don't see. They're not featured. They just do. Many times you go into a company and, you, and the guy says, well, this is our VP and this is our manager and this is that and what have you. And you, you go I, you know, in business consulting and you go in, you look at the company, and you come back to the owner of the company and you go, your entire leadership team is bullshit. Not a single person here gives a damn about anything they have to say. And half of them, they aren't really doing anything for you. So I get rid of this guy and this guy. These two guys have potential if it can be channeled. But here's the guy that's actually running your company today, and you owe him everything. Because he's the guy that says, hey, guys, let's get this done. And instead of seeing it as a guy that's just pushing them like a slave driver, uh, the, the people around them look at him like a commander in battle, and they say, I'm, I'm, if, if, if John's willing to go, I'm willing to go with John. And you don't even know who John is. Those are the exceptional people in the American workforce. They're why we're still pretty damn good. Even if aggregate average, we're not the best. And we have the potential for more and more of those people to demonstrate what they're capable of. The adversity that I speak of that we're headed for is an opportunity for those that are truly willing to do the most to demonstrate what that really means. There's tremendous opportunity in our future. There's also an opportunity to once again be able to say proudly, we are the best. We're not there. That's not who we are anymore. And if that makes you upset, just don't be mad at me. I'm just telling you the way it is. I'm not the reason it's that way. You're probably not either. But if we're ever going to rise again to the greatness that this country is truly capable of, To be the shining city of liberty on a hill, we're going to have to take back our liberties and freedom. I didn't say ask for them back. I said take them back. And if we take back our liberty and freedom and unchain the potential of American innovation and entrepreneurship, we could be proud to once again say we are number one.
But right now, we don't deserve that honor. That's the truth, whether we like it or not. Just like being an alcoholic or a drug addict, you can't fix the problem until you admit it. Until we have admitted that we have fallen, we can't get on all fours and begin to stand back up. If we can't stand back up, we can't teach ourselves to walk again. If we can't teach ourselves to walk again, we can't run. This is a nation built by runners, currently being controlled by a bunch of fat guys in wheelchairs who aren't crippled. They're just too fat to get out of the chair. And somebody put a joystick in their hand and gave them a sticker so they don't have to walk too far to the front door of the store where they can buy more Oreos, Ding Dongs, and Big Macs. And I'm not actually talking about those guys in the fat man wheelchairs with the, with the handicap stickers. I'm talking about your leadership in this country. Talk about the people that run this country. They're making a living on the backs of what's left. They've extracted so much that the people they're extracting it from have largely thrown up their hands and said, screw it, I quit. They needed something to do with those people, so they put them into a group of people that we now call consumers. And they've used the fear that the consumer will tweak out and riot to keep the limited producers still producing. And the producer's becoming more and more asking himself, why am I producing? Why? Why do I bother? Or why don't I just take my business and leave this country and go somewhere where I can be left the hell alone? But there's something about those of you in the, the anarcho-libertarian world might get upset what I'm saying right now because I switched the other way, but it's, again, it's just the truth. There's just something about the ideal that this nation was really built on. See, ideas you cannot destroy. They will not go away. We may have never fully lived up to the idea, but the idea was freedom and liberty and justice for all men. And the security to know that which you created, you were entitled to benefit from and that it would not be taken from you. That idea is stronger here than it's ever been anywhere in the world. What has to happen So we have to turn that idea into a reality. And that happens with action, and it happens with leadership. Remember this, I've been hard on the leadership of this nation today, and it's justified. And it is what the average person is emulating, the leaders that they see in front of them. But the greatest failure of leadership in this country, as I've said before, is not at the federal level or the state level or the county level. It's at the individual level. We have failed as a people to lead in our own lives. It is through that leadership that the true greatness that was the potential of this country to not only be restored, but to fully be realized. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better Let me show you
Revolution.